Let me ask to turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. What is God doing with present day Israel? That was a question that the believers there in Rome were likely thinking. And I think it's a good question for us to ask today as well. What is God doing with present day Israel? Well, last time we saw that God has the power to graft Israel back into the olive tree which, from which it had been temporarily cut off. And the reason that we can be sure of this is that God can graft Israel back into the place where they are blessed and receiving uh, His blessing is because of what we see here in verses 25 through 27. That is that Paul had been given this mystery that this mystery had been revealed to him regarding God's plan plan, uh, with Israel. And so last week we saw that it was possible for God to graft Israel back in, to bring Israel to a place where they're back in, in, in the center of His blessing. But this week we're going to see that it's not only possible, but it's guaranteed. Not only can it happen, but it will happen. That Israel will be restored. They will be saved. And that's something that we should take joy in as well. So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 25. I'll read down to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. For I do not want you, brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, so that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that He may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to God that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. This morning we're going to see that God deserves our praise because of His mercy in salvation. God deserves our praise because of His mercy in salvation. The first part of the text is verses 25-32 to 32, that, that we are saved by the grace of God, by His mercy. And then the last part of the text, verses 33-36, to 36, show us that because of that we should praise. But we're going to look at it in terms of the gift of salvation. And the first thing that we see is that the gift of salvation is based on God's promise. The gift of salvation is based on God's promise. Verses 25 through 27. This is true both for Israel and 
for the Gentiles. Now the focus here in verses 25 through 27 is on Israel, but we can learn from this. We can apply this to ourselves as well. Paul begins here with the word for pointing back to his previous argument. He wants to make this content clear about this mystery. Not only is it possible that God can save Israel, but He will save them. And so God expects humility. Verse 25, in fact, this is what He expects from us because this, this conversation here that we're reading is actually directed at people like us, Gentiles, people who are not Jews. And, and notice what He wants them to know. I, I want you to know, verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Why? So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So you Gentiles, I want you to be clear about something so that you're not wise in your own estimation, that that you're not arrogant. You see that in the text? The truth is, is that we Gentiles can, over time, become proud in ourselves as we see that God has now set the Jews aside, right? The Jews once were at the center of God's program, the center of God's blessing, but now they've been set aside for us kind of to take the spotlight. And so we can become proud. And that was that here is the goal, that, that Paul doesn't want us to become conceited. It's the same goal that the Holy Spirit had for us in the last passage. Remember verse 18? Do not be arrogant. Just because you're a part of the olive tree now, do not be arrogant. And then verse 20? The end of the verse, do not be conceited. So the, the temptation or the, 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 um, the drift that we have as Gentiles, is that, as Gentile Christians, is that we can come to a place where we start to think that our salvation is somehow because of us. And what Paul and I think the Holy Spirit want us to see is that we need to be humble when it comes to our consideration of the Gospel, both in how God gave it to us and how God is giving it to the Jews as well. So the necessity of humility. Secondly, the nature of the mystery. Paul talks about this mystery and he's saying, okay, in order for you not to be conceited, I I need to tell you about this mystery. So what is this mystery? What is this mystery that Paul's talking about in verse 25? Now, when we think of the word mystery, we think of something that involves clues, right? It's It's puzzling. It's mysterious. But the word in the Greek from which we get the word mystery is a word that means something that was previously hidden something that was previously unknown. And so, what is this mystery? What is the content of something that was unknown in the past, but now is being made known? Well, Paul tells us in verses 25 and 26. Look at the end of the verse, verse 25. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. There's the first part. Second, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So we'll have to talk about what that is. And then third, verse 26, so that all Israel will be saved. So here's the mystery that I want you to know so that you don't get arrogant about your own position. That there's a partial hardening that has happened to Israel so that all the Gentiles will, be sa- will, will come in and so that that will lead to Israel being saved. We have really a progression here, don't we? Or you could think of it like a set of dominoes. The first domino is a partial hardening of Israel. The second domino is the Gentiles coming in. Do you see at the end of verse 25? And then the third domino is that all Israel will be saved. And and one of them leads to the next. Israel's hardened, the Gentiles come in, and then that leads to all Israel being saved. 
So we have to ask, well, well, how are these things really a mystery in terms of how the Scripture uses mystery? How are these things previously unknown? Because we already knew that Israel was hardened. That's what Paul's been talking about for the last couple of chapters. He's saying Israel has turned away from God. We already knew that. We also know that the Gentiles were offered the Gospel. That's really what part of Romans is about. And we also know from the Old Testament that Israel will be saved. It was a promise that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that there will be an ingathering of all the Jews. And so what is it that is so unknown that we need to know about in order to keep from becoming proud? And I think the answer is that the nature of the progression, specifically between how the Gospel got to and will actually grip and take a hold of Israel. So we might know all of these three things, that Israel will be hardened, and they are, and that the Gentiles will come in, and they are coming in. But, but what we might not know, and I think his readers wouldn't have known, is that the way that Israel will be saved, verse 26, the way that they will all be saved is once the Gentiles come in. That is, that, that, that now we have an idea of when this will happen, or, or by what means. And so it's not just that the Gentiles need, we Gentiles need to know, not just that God has the power to bring Israel to salvation, but what they also need to know is that God is using them and their acceptance, the Gentiles' acceptance of the gospel, to bring eventually the Jews to saving faith. That the, that the Gentiles will be kind of the catalyst to bringing full salvation to the Jews. God here during this long period of time in which He's opening up the Gospel to the Gentiles, is extending His hand of grace. And then, in the future, at the end of the tribulation, God's going to bring His attention, His focus back to the Jews again and and bring all of them to salvation. And and this is what will happen. Notice verse 26 again, because I, I think we need to be clear about this. And so, all Israel will be saved. Now, we need to be clear what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that the church is Israel and that all the church will be saved. That's not the promise here. Israel is Israel. The church is different. It's a new entity, new identity. The promise here is for all ethnic Israel. All ethnic Israel will be saved. They will come to saving faith. And this makes sense. Considering what we... We saw uh, in, in a previous verse, right? Verse 25, at the end of the verse, that a partial hardening has happened to... Is that talking about the church there? No, it's talking about ethnic Israel. A partial hardening has happened to ethnic Israel. So it makes sense and it's consistent with the promise in verses 12 and 15 that this olive branch that has been removed from the olive tree is now going to be grafted back in. That is, ethnic Israel has been set aside for a time, but they're going to be brought back to a place of God's blessing. And we know that this is going to take place from the book of Revelation at the end of the tribulation when there is a nationwide salvation of Israel where individual Jews will come to a realization that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that they were waiting for and that He will be believed. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a second, how can every single Jew come to saving faith? Well, I think in this case, all doesn't mean all. It doesn't mean every single one. 
And, and there is uh, precedent for that in other parts of Scripture. Let me just give you a couple examples. First, Mark 1.5, a place where all doesn't mean every single one. Listen to this verse and, and consider what's going on. This is all the country of Judea was going out to John the Baptist and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. So all the country of Judea was going out and all of Jerusalem was being baptized. Now, in that case, does that mean all, every single one? Right? We know from the context that the Pharisees were rejecting him. Right? John the Baptist. They were not being baptized. And Jesus confronts them about that. So it doesn't mean every single one. Another example is Matthew 2.3 when Herod heard about Jesus' birth. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It was every single person in Jerusalem troubled with Herod about the birth of Jesus? No. We know there were a lot of people who weren't troubled by it. In fact, they were joyful about it. And so when we use the the word all, we we do the same thing in, in our language as well. And so here, I think in verse 26, Paul is not saying all meaning every single one, but I think he's saying as a whole. As a whole, in general, the nation of Israel will finally come to saving faith. That hasn't happened. That has not, they have not accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah as a nation. Are they doing it now? Did they do it in Paul's day? No. But there's coming a day when particularly the leaders and many of the people, I would say at least a majority of the people, will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and that will happen at the end of the tribulation. The proof of Israel's future salvation, uh, their promise of salvation there at the beginning of verse 26, and then the proof of Israel's future salvation comes from the Old Testament. We know that Israel's nationwide salvation will come in the connection with, with the Lord's return because of the proof that we have from Isaiah 27, 9. It says there at the end of verse 26, just as it is written in Isaiah's prophecy. The deliverer will call from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This deliverer, notice it's capitalized, showing us that it's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah will come and will restore the covenant that God had made with Israel. And what was that covenant that God had made specifically to the people of Israel? It was, I will be your God and you will be my people, Genesis 17.8. And notice the means by which they will come and receive God's blessing at the end of verse 27. When I take away their sins. In other words, Israel receives salvation the same way that we receive salvation, the same way that every single person in human history was saved. Not by God waving a magic wand over all the nations and said, Zap, you're all saved. God doesn't ignore their sin. Each one of them needs to come to a realization that they are a sinner before God and that Jesus is the only way that they can have a right standing before God. And that as they come to Jesus and acknowledge Him as Lord, then God applies to them the blood of Jesus just as He did for us. And the point is that God is faithful to His promise. God is faithful to His promise. The gift of salvation is based on God's promise to His people that He will bring about the salvation. Secondly, the gift of salvation is based on God's mercy in verses 28-32. through So Paul's trying to say, listen, don't be conceited. God's salvation is based on His promise. He's going to follow through on it with 
Israel. So don't be conceited about it. And here's another reason why we shouldn't be conceited, because of God's mercy. He wants to show that, Paul wants to show that the fact that God is carrying out His plan to save Israel is actually a, a signal or a picture of His, God, of His mercy. So that you should recognize that not only when God saves Israel is it of His mercy, but that when God saved you Gentiles, it was because of His mercy. So here we see the present rejection of Israel. This present rejection, this present hardening that's talked about in verse 25 has actually served for our benefit, hasn't it? Verse 28. From the standpoint of the Gospel, they, Jews, are enemies for your Gentiles' sake. From the standpoint of the Gospel, the Jews are currently enemies of the cross. They're enemies of Christ. And that's for your benefit, Gentiles. And why is that for your benefit? Because what's happened is God in His wisdom has decided to make it possible for the Gospel to go to the Gentiles. And how did it actually come to us? It happened after Israel rejected the Gospel. When they were hardened toward it, And so this should highlight for us God's mercy. That it was nothing in us that God saw and said, wow, what great Gentiles. These are going to be such good children of mine. But rather, He he simply chose, listen, if you're not going to accept it, Jews, I'm sending the Gospel to the Gentiles. And this should highlight God's mercy. Next we see that Israel's rejection does not mean that God has given up on the Jews. We might look at the situation, well, the Jews have been rejected, the gospel's coming to us, therefore the Jews are gone forever. But what we need to recognize here is what Paul says at the end of verse 28. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they, the Jews, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That is, the fathers, the forefathers. Don't think that just because the Gospel has now come to you, yes, it's great that they're enemies of the cross because it's given you an opportunity to hear about the cross. But don't think that God's given up on them because God has not given up on them. For the sake of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are going to be restored. God has not cast off Israel as His beloved. Instead, He, he plans to restore them. And in fact, that's what He says in verse 29. There is a guarantee of Israel's future salvation. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. One of the great blessings, the privileges of being a Jew was that they had all these great resources at their disposal. God's gift. He had come to them. He had lived among them. He had given them His Word. He had sent to them leaders and kings and prophets. They had all these gifts. And what Paul's saying is, listen, those are not able to be reversed. That there will come benefit from those things. And that's why all Israel will be saved because God, consistent with, his, with what we saw in chapter 9, verse 6, God does not fail on His promises, does He? He doesn't fail on His promises. And so if He promised that all Israel will be saved, they will be saved. And so, now that we consider ourselves in light of the Jews, in light of Israel, that, that we received everything we have on the basis of God mercy, God's mercy, now what Paul wants to do is kind of uh, bring these all together. We are like Israel. Our story is very similar to theirs, isn't it? Verses 30 and 31. 
For just as you Gentiles once were disobedient to God, now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, their hardening, right? their removal, their, their being cut off from the branch. Just, be, just like you have been shown mercy because of their present hardening, notice what happens in verse 31. So these Jews also now have been disobedient. That, because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they, the Jews, will also be shown mercy. You see what's going on here? The reason that the Gospel came to us was because the Jews rejected it. The Jews rejected the Gospel. And, and we, even though we were imprisoned in our own disobedience, the only hope that we had was for God to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. Show us mercy. And that's what He did. And so it was in a time, think about this, it was in a time when we Gentiles were living in disobedience, opposed to God, not seeking Him, because there's no one who seeks after God. And that's when God came and gave us the Gospel. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And what He's saying is about the Jews, yes, they're off, they're, they're partially set aside for a time, but, but they're coming back. And do you know what time that I'm going to show my mercy on them? at a time, verse 31, of their disobedience. Just like I came to you Gentiles, at a time of your disobedience, I'm going to come to them, those Jews, at a time of their disobedience. And the purpose in all of that, God says, is so that I can highlight my mercy on them. So that they can't attribute any of what happens to their strength. And notice in verse 32, The point of all this is that salvation comes at a time when we need God most. God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. So He's saying, so whether you be a a Gentile or whether you be a Jew, God comes to you at a time when you are disobedient to Him. Both Jews and Gentiles receive God's grace at a time of their disobedience. And the point of God doing a work like that at a time when it's most unlikely for us to receive His mercy is to highlight His grace. So the previous alienation that we had from the Gospel as a group of people, Gentiles, the present hardening of the Jews, the salvation being spread to the Gentiles, the future salvation of the Jews, all of those are to show us what a great God we serve that while we were yet sinners, God rescued us that there was nothing lovely in us that compelled God to save us. We were enemies of His. And yet that's why His mercy is so amazing. When I met Jennifer at Inner City Baptist Church for the first time, I thought she was a sweet young lady. And yet I didn't know her very well. But you know, the more that I came to know her, the more I loved her company, And over a period of time, I began to actually determine to love her. That there's something about her that made her lovable to me. And you know, the time came when I made a conscious decision that I would never love anyone else as I loved her. And that I would choose her to be my wife to the exclusion of every other woman on the planet. And all that took place about 17 years ago And to this day, I can say that my love has deepened for her. 
that something that started out as an attraction turned into a specific choice. A, a, a choice that made sense. Because as I came to know her more, I loved her more. But do you know that God did not come to love us in the same way that I came to love Jennifer? Don't be mistaken. We are like Israel. We are a putrid, disgusting, miserable existence to look upon. God didn't look upon us and become attracted to us. He didn't think, you know, the more I get to know this person, the more I love him. No, the more he came to know us, the more he knew about our sin and that we were his enemies. And yet, praise God, he loved us despite all that, didn't he? It was all His unconditional love for us. It's not a love based on what we had done, praise God. And it's not a love based on what we would have done or what we will still do. It's based on God's choice, on His mercy. That's what these verses are talking about. While we were in a time of disobedience, God poured out His mercy. His love breaks through the barriers of our wretched sin. It reaches down into the darkest, dirtiest cave of vile humanity and picks up us, a worthless lump of coal that has no value, no attraction. You know what God says? I will take this mold, uh, this worthless garbage and mold it into something that's radiant, something that's going to, to highlight my glory in all the earth so that that person who could have been marked out for destruction has now been taken and transformed into a trophy of my grace. And I will do that so that all the world will know that I am God and that I am a merciful God to those who don't deserve it. And God, do you know what He does in salvation? He takes that dirty chunk of a rock and He transforms it with the Word. And when people see that change... That change from a coal to a diamond that happens over the course of our life and on into eternity. They don't look at the diamond and say, wow, great job in changing yourself from that piece of coal. They look at the one who made the diamond. They look at God for His grace. Friend, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are a trophy of God's grace. You were created and bought with the blood of Christ in order to display the excellencies of His wisdom. And why in the world would God do this? Turn back to chapter 9. Let me show you quickly. Why in the world would God take us who are objects of His wrath and turn us into vessels of His mercy? Look at verse 22. Let me remind you of this passage. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if He did so in order to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles? As He says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not My people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. See what God has done here? 
he's, he's determined certain people that are going to be prepared for destruction and He's set them up and allowed them to live. And He's done that so that we, who are vessels of His mercy, can contrast ourselves to where we ought to be. We ought to receive God's full and final wrath and an eternal hell because of our sins. But for some reason... God in His mercy looked down on us and allowed the Gospel to come to us and for us to receive it. And by His grace, He saved us. And His love, He has displayed His mercy so that we can magnify His glory both now and forevermore. And you know, God's love doesn't just start or doesn't just end at the time of salvation. Well, I decided to make them a vessel of my mercy. No, he continues it on all the way throughout our lives, don't he? Doesn't he? That so that when we uh, stray from him at times, he brings us back, and he continues to mold us and shape us. He continues to love us because he's chosen to love us. And do you know nothing can separate you from the love of God if you're in Christ? Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You see, Israel, while they are a miserable existence and that they have turned away from God despite all that He's given to them, they help us to see that God is gracious, that God is merciful to people like us who have turned from Him. So what do we do now when we consider our salvation as this great gift of God? And this is exactly what Paul does here in verses 33 to 36. He praises God for His mercy. When we remember what God has done and when we're reminded of what a great God we serve, that He is so merciful to us, we respond the same way that Paul does with a doxology at the end of verse uh, of chapter 11. And first we see the gift of salvation is based on God's wisdom. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? God blesses us despite our disobedience, both Jew and Gentile. So how do we respond? You know, our response ought not to be, well, it's a great history lesson, that's a great Bible lesson. And, you know, academically, I'm, I'm more astute than I was before. No, we should come away with, with the same way that Paul comes away. What a great God we serve. How unsearchable are His ways. What a wonderful plan of God. Who could ever imagine something like this? And that's what Paul does. God, Your ways are vast and deep. And, and I can't even fully comprehend why You do all these things, but I praise You for this. The point is is that God's purposes regarding the inclusion of us Gentiles and the temporary exclusion of the Jews today and the future repentance of the nation of Israel is all a part of God's grand story in order to magnify Himself and His mercy. You see what's going on here? As we look at some of these questions that were asked in in chapters 9-11, through You know, this seems to be some injustice in how you're handling something. Why would you choose Jacob over Esau? Why would you choose Isaac over Ishmael? There seems to be some injustice going on there. As we look back on some of those things, we we may want to put God on trial. God, how can you be fair? How can you be just? How can you go back on your promise? But when we step back, as Paul has helped us to do in these last three chapters, and look at the bigger picture of what God is doing, 
and the corruption that we had in our own lives. And, and yet the mercy that poured out to us despite our sin. We have to respond like Paul does, which is, how unsearchable are your judgments, God? You bring, ugly, you bring beauty out of ugliness. We can't fully know you, like verse 34 says. Who can know you? Right? And the answer is no one can fully know you. But, but God has allowed himself to be known in some way. And, and you know, one of the, thing, one of the great pleasures of, the, of heaven will be that we will be able to continue to enjoy and learn from God's wisdom. We, we will continue to, to, to grow in our understanding of how great of a God that He is. You see, we are finite creatures, so we can't, we're not, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be infinite in our understanding. We don't know everything that God knows when we get to heaven. We'll know a lot more than we know now because we'll, be, uh, uh, we'll have the sin removed from us that's kind of blinding us to the truth and the glory of God. We'll be able to see Him for what He is, but we'll not be, we'll, we'll not be as wise as God. No one will ever be that way. But, but for all of eternity, we'll be able to learn more about who God is. And we'll be saying things like Paul's saying right here, how unsearchable are your judgments? Who can know your mind, God? The gift of salvation is based on God's wisdom. It's also based on our, or it's beyond our ability to earn. Verse 35, or who has first given to God that it might be paid back to him again? This is a quotation from Job 41. When God is uh, rebuking Job for asking all these questions, and the implied answer is no one. No one can give back to God in order to earn his blessing. We can't earn God's favor. We can't work for God's favor. It all comes as a gift of his grace. Do you realize God doesn't owe us anything? This is what Job had to be reminded of. And this is what the Gospel reminds us of as well. The fact that God gave you His Gospel and the fact that you accepted it by faith has nothing to do with your goodness, your ability, anything in you. But it has everything to do with God's mercy. If it had to do with you paying for something or earning something, then it would be merited. But salvation in no way is earned by you or by me. Finally, the gift of salvation demands our highest praise. Verse 36. When we recognize God for who He is, that He is, notice, the source of all things, for from Him. God is the source of all things. In Him, everything moves and has its existence. No life can come apart from God. God is the ultimate source of life. You realize that God doesn't draw His life from anything else. Right? God is self-existence. He is the one who provides life. So He is the source of all things from Him. And then notice, He is the means by which all things happen through Him. That if anything is going to get accomplished, it can only be accomplished through God. That God has to allow it. God has to provide the strength for it. And then finally, God is also the goal of all things to Him. So from Him, the source, through Him, the means, and to Him, the goal or the ends. It all goes back to God. And so, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Two main points that we saw this morning. First, we cannot be conceited as Gentiles because of our position in Christ. We cannot be conceited. And, and we can't because of our salvation. And second, we need to praise God for His mercy on us. 
So let me just give you um, two points of application that are consistent with these two points. First, humbly acknowledge your position before God. Don't be conceited. Don't think too highly of yourself. That, like in verse 25, don't be wise in your own estimation. Or in verse 18 and 20 from last time, don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. The history of salvation is like a drama played out on a universal stage. God chooses Israel as the main role, the main character in this drama to bask in the spotlight. But in the script that God has written, it's also written for Israel to fall, right? And so they actually move off of the center stage so that the Gentiles for a time can take center stage and have the lead role. And we might think, well, because we're on the center stage, then, then this means that we're special. We're better than the Jews. And what God wants us to see is, listen, you're going to be set aside for a time as well so that the Jews can get back to the center of the stage. And the point is, is that the reason that any of you are on the stage is because of my mercy. Don't think of the Jews as villains and you the heroes. Christ is the reason that any of you exist. We need to be reminded of the end of the story that, that Israel will be brought back to a place of full salvation. And the fact that God has chosen to show mercy to any of us during a time in which we were disobedient ought to bring us to our knees. It ought to humble us. And so acknowledge your position before God and cause it to humble you in the face of God. And then secondly, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Paul finishes the theological portion of his letter with the doxology. We'll talk about this more next week. But, but basically the first 11 chapters are all theological in nature. They're, they're trying to get us to understand more about who God is, more about our salvation, our position before we came to Christ, our position in Christ. And, and now he's going to move more to the practical section where we start to live this out. But what I want you to see here at the end of chapter 11 is that, that doctrine, which is what chapters 1 through 11 is about, right? Doct- we've taken a lot of time to try to understand what's going on here. Doctrine is not just for professors and scholars and academics. But doctrine is for every Christian. Because as we come to understand it more, it results in what it results here for, for Paul, right? It results in praise. We remember, we dive more into the depths of the theology, the study of God and His Word and and salvation, and it causes us to do what? Respond in joyful praise. Oh, the depths and the riches and the glory of God, right? To Him belongs all the glory. So, we need to respond in the same way. We are imbalanced if we have simply a devotion for God that's divorced from theology. You know, we might like to pit these things to uh, these things against each other. You know, like either I'm devotional or I'm theological. But but a person who is devotional without being theological is not biblically grounded, and they're imbalanced spiritually. But a person who's theological but not devotional is also imbalanced, right? If the, if it's all academic and it never leads to something that rises up in my heart and says, yes, amen, then it ought to concern us. We need both of them. We need a theological devotion towards God and we need a devotional theology, don't we? That our understanding of theology, our understanding of doctrine should result in worship. 
So that specifically, the more that we plumb the depths of God's wisdom and mercy in the gospel, the more it drives us to our knees. And the more it drives us to lift up our praise to God. Because apart from God's mercy, apart from God's mercy, you and I would be condemned to an eternal destruction because of our sin. But by His grace, we are adopted into His family. And our condemnation has been removed from us and put upon our Savior. And the result is that our life is a life lived of worship for the One in whom is the source, means, and goal of all things. So to Him be all the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise You because it is from You that all blessings flow. Lord, it was at a time of great weakness and straying and turning from You in which You rescued us from ourselves, from the destruction that we deserved because of our sin and our opposition to You. And Lord, we can't stop thinking enough about how great of a God You are. We can't stop singing Your praises. We can't stop praising You in our prayers because of the mercy that You've shown to us. Lord, help us not to be conceited, but to see ourselves humbly. You did not come to love us because of something lovable in us, but You came to love us even when we were at our worst. You came to love us despite who we were. And yet now we are children of Yours and we're able to please You. We're able to live a life of holiness and that's what we want to do. We want to respond to our thoughts of You and Your salvation with praise and with obedient lives. So help us, Lord, to do that. It's so easy for us to get distracted from what is most important in life. So help us to be recalibrated this morning in our minds. To take what we've seen here in Your Word, respond to it, properly as you desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.